Before we begin today's episode, I'd like to quickly note that this content was recorded prior to the Minister of Immigration's announcements on January 22nd. We at NAC are committed to highlighting the valuable work our members do. You may have seen us sharing our insights on the Minister's announcements in the media, but we encourage you to stay updated with the news for our official comments and responses. But before we dive into today's episode, in fairness to our guests, I wanted to make it clear that we recorded this episode prior to the minister's announcement. I also think that we overthink what it means to reskill, right? And reskill can be micro-skilling as well. You don't have to take a, a year-long course in order to gain new skills. How can a set of skills lead you down the path to success? That's what we're setting out to answer on the Ed Up Canada podcast. I'm your host, Michael Sangster. Join me as we unpack how leaders around the world have taken training and skills and turned that into a lasting career. Now let's learn together. Welcome back to the Ed Up Canada podcast, where we're going to continue our discussion with Kathleen Monk, Marlene Floyd, and Ginny Roth. Last time you shared some personal thoughts on mentoring, leadership, skills development, and education. And for those of you who haven't heard the episode one, you learned not to be a jerk. So today we're going to discuss the return of parliament. There's a few there, immigration, international students, and some of the concerns and confusion around those issues. But we'll jump right off here because as we air this episode, Parliament's just returning. So let's talk politics. So I'm going to ask the three of you what you think Canadians should be looking for in this session of Parliament and when you think the next election might be. We started with Marlene last time, so let's go to Kathleen this time and put her on the spot. Well, I don't think that the election will happen until 2025. So we have a lot of time in, in my view. And that means that this year, 2024, is really the last year for the government to kind of get their act in order if they actually want to have a fighting chance at, at staying in government. To your question of what Canadians should expect from this parliament, listen, the three of us are listening and watching parliament day in and day out, but normal people are not. <laughs> so I think what they just want from their government is to deliver on the services and the things that they need to get by in their life. You know, obviously, if I was giving advice to the current government, um, I would tell them to get their narrative straight, right? Come out into this parliament with a clear view of how they want to tackle the next election. They have Their communication strategy has been all over the map. Their political and policy has been, frankly, incoherent. The Conservatives have been doing a bang-up job, a successful job at basically controlling the political discourse. So they need to basically flip the script, the Liberals, if they're going to, to kind of make any headway in this year, in the last year before the election. Marlene, you're nodding. Yeah, I agree. From my perspective, I think that every day the government is not talking about affordability in this country. They are off message. This is what every Canadian is keeping them up at night because way too many people are trying to decide if whether they can pay the rent or feed their children. And this is the stark reality that we are starting to see in this country. Unfortunately, I think what we're going to see from the government, it's the result of, of being eight, almost nine years into a mandate is 
the long tail to existing policies that they have. And what I mean by that is things that they made decisions on three, four, five years ago, they still have to talk about today because it's part of governing, right? So energy policy, climate policy, we're talking about repayment back of the loans that came in from COVID. And now all these things are hitting, which is ultimately having to force the government off of message and that they can't talk about affordability. So those are some of the things that I think we're going to have to see. I agree with Kathleen. I think this election won't be until 2025. I have nothing to base that on beyond just general partisanship and, and just watching the news. But I think this is what I will be watching for as a Canadian of how is the government going to tackle the affordability crisis that we have in this country. And I think that's going to set them apart as they... And they have to do it and they have to do it well, because I think the conservatives are really owning that message right now and they need to figure that out before 2025. Jenny? Uh, all of the above. <laughs> I agree on the election date, mainly because the people empowered to trigger what don't want one. <laughs> and so every day in power um, is a day in power, right? <laughs> exactly. 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 And I think even for the NDP, they'd like more time to fundraise. They, you know, so it's really hard to see an election coming before it's mandated. And on affordability, the only thing I'd add is that in many ways, the government's in a double bind. On the one hand, they don't have strong solutions to the affordability crisis. They don't seem to be able to move the needle on building housing. They are reluctant to remove their own carbon tax, which is a marquee commitment. They've got all these challenges and limitations on supporting affordability. And then whenever they talk inadvertently or on purpose about other things, they're seeming to be frivolous about sort of like non-common sense things. Like there was something last week about tracking the climate emissions from pizza ovens, which then, of course, the opposition immediately jumps on because it's like, who cares? You know, I can't even afford to put gas in my car. So they're in a double bind and I don't envy them. And, you know, the other thing about having been in power for so long is the extent to which the liberal government has control of the whole government is not entirely clear to me. Like that pizza oven thing was probably like a memo someone wrote in a department that kind of snuck out on the comms rollout that there wasn't real strong leadership on. And and so just the, that day-to-day -day political management of trying to deprioritize unhelpful things and prioritize and move forward helpful things, the government's just really, really been struggling with. And I think opposition parties will, will seek to exploit that. And the government seems to have been trying a bit of a reset. They have some new staff in, in PMO. And I, but so far, those attempted resets, there was a cabinet shuffle, there was a caucus retreat. They haven't worked. So we'll see. Power piles up too. Your decisions pile up on you and it becomes a a bit of a rolling stone that gets hard to stop, right? So I think that's what many of you are speaking to as well. So before we move on, because I think you've kind of, we were going to talk a little bit of here about education and career education. Obviously, I work with 550 regulated career colleges across Canada that train people. So it's of interest for people listening to this. So what people think the relevance of that is in party agendas in terms of importance. But I think in many ways, you've kind of touched on it already by saying it's affordability, it's other issues are going to drive the day. And we're never a main issue, but I am interested. Where do you think career education, education in general, sits on the federal stage? And if you've got a provincial view, share it. So why don't we start off with you, Marlene? You know, it's a challenge because obviously education is a provincial jurisdiction. So the pieces that the federal government can play are limited. And I think that it looks at things like infrastructure, perhaps um, the skilling agenda. We have the immigration issues, which we all know about, but the affordability, all 
housing, all these things I think are coupled, which do create problems like in serious political issues that the government needs to solve for, but aren't necessarily within their pillar or their silo of, of how we, we set ourselves up as a country. How I think government would see education is like, this is what makes Canada great, right? Like, and we need to be able to figure out how we can have an educated population that is going to have strong economic um, contributions to grow the country. So it's an important piece, but they don't always have the levers at a federal level in order to do anything major to kind of drive home that beyond some of those big macro issues like immigration, housing, affordability problems that we what we're, we're hearing and seeing. So Kathleen, anything you want to add to this or? Yeah, I mean, obviously they can't do much beyond the bricks and mortar or the scholarships, but uh, I think the pl policy platforms of the parties are the where you'd want to look for how they view education. And, you know, I've worked most closely with the New Democrats on platforms and and because of the party's close ties to unions and and other jurisdictions, they basically have always focused on training and skilling up, right? And think that that's an important part. And I think that's also because the observation that, you know, the private sector should be doing more to train their individuals too, you know? So in the last platform, just to give you an example, New Democrats said, you know, private sector businesses should be spending about 1% on training their own workforce. We've kind of gotten out of the training business. In fact, I saw a stat, this is a few years ago now, so I'd have to recheck it, but that really... In terms of private sector training, work Canada is one of the lowest among comparable countries. And so there has to be ongoing training and ongoing learning. And, um, and parties need to look at ways that we can get the skills that our future economy needs. The other thing I'd add is I'll bring my right of center perspective on this. You're seeing because of what's going on in foreign policy, weirdly, there's been a real spotlight on academic leaders in the U.S. who lead primarily big universities, big elite universities. And I wouldn't be surprised if you see a similar light, Sean, uh, and we're starting to in right of center circles on universities in Canada and the role they play, the way they protect free speech or don't, <laughs> the way they make their student populations feel safe or don't, particularly Jewish student populations these days. And I think that makes particularly conservative policymakers and advisors think about the role of all of post-secondary. And frankly, Michael, I think it puts your members in a good light. It's like, who's actually just doing the work of training people for the jobs they need? And who is mucking about in academic freedom and free speech and, and other areas? And so there's obviously more of an appetite for that among conservatives. But if I was looking at the conservatives coming up with their policy thinking going into the next election, I'd be looking at some skepticism around some of the older school universities that are not the bastions of free speech they perhaps once were, and a much, much greater openness to some of the more practical skills building environments in community and career colleges who are much more hewing to the needs of the business community in Canada and and where there are skills gaps in Canada. So I don't know that all those points have kind of coalesced together, but they all impact the federal level. And every party is going to have to have something to say about post-secondary going into the next election because we do have a skills gap. It does roll into the federal level as it relates back to immigration. And we'll talk about the public perception of our sector. And I appreciate your, your comments, Jenny, because I have become a, a passionate advocate for this sector and the membership that I represent. Unfortunately, on occasion, we're judged by the people who aren't our members, and we're judged by um, perceptions and the occasional story. 
So uh, I'd be interested in in your own opinions about the public perceptions around our sector. And, and then let's just walk right into the immigration file. And I'll, I'll give a bit of a view from our, because I live this every day. You guys don't. But on the immigration file, we were very pleased to see the Minister of, of Immigration talk about the fact that we should be looking at immigration for international students being focused on skills and labor force market needs, not just around driving students into our institutions for financial gain. And I would state, because I say this wherever I go, all levels of the ed- post-secondary education system have a role to play. And we're not trying to train doctors, but we have a good role to play in training cybersecurity and nursing and IT people, truck driving, logistics, all the jobs that we actually need in this country to be filled. So let's talk about those perceptions and maybe the immigration international student issue for a little bit. And Kathleen, you you nodded, so you get to go first. Not sure exactly what question you want me to respond to, but on immigration, just generally, I'll speak to and what's in the news prominently these last few weeks is that we seem to have a bit of turned a corner, right? It's almost like the tragedy of good intentions. The government opened up our immigration, pumped up our numbers because they were concerned about, you know, the labor shortage and to fill that skills gap. And now there's been a bit of a movement, not only because of the concerns around housing and shelter and shelter costs growing up, but because they haven't, as you said, been as closely focused on what we're doing with all these people that are coming into our country, like and the, the temporary residents and the visas that are like, are we training them to be the people that we want to be permanent residents and permanently a part of our economy? And so I think that it's challenged not only because, you know, we don't want Canadians to turn public opinion on immigration, right? We've been blessed, I would say, in this country by a very welcoming spirit and the promise of what Canada can be. But it seems like we're running into this triple whammy right now of not only the the challenges with, you know, we might we have too many people potentially we it's costing too much and it's driving up shelter costs. And now on top of that, it's this triple whammy of like people's opinion is starting to change. So the government has to intervene, I think, at this point, they have to intervene, be smarter. You know, I would point and Ginny can come back at me on this, but there was a dissolution of the uh sector councils many years ago under the Harper government, right, where we used to actually forecast what our needs were for our economy, what kind of jobs needed to be created and therefore what skills we needed. And with the abandonment of that, that was business, academics and unions all working together and to figure out what we needed in the future. And that doesn't happen as much anymore. And I thought that was a good alliance, if you will, to figure out how we could train the next generation of Canadians and and help focus our immigration uh, policy as well, too. So I uh, kind of all over the map there, Michael, but I hope I touched with some of the stuff you wanted. <laughs> the question was all over the map. So you're clear to do that, Kathleen. <laughs> Jenny, go ahead. Well, maybe I will start by coming back on Kathleen a bit, because I think one thing I say to people all the time is we have a pretty good model for quite high immigration levels that are well managed. And that is the Harper government, period. We were brought in a lot of immigrants into Canada and there wasn't this pushback in public opinion. So, and that wasn't that long ago. So it's very doable. And I think it comes from just thoughtful management about balancing the needs of the population. But I think it's also helpful to ground this conversation and like, why is this happening? We have a supply and demand problem in Canada where we have a lot of demand, which we want. We want to grow as a country. It creates opportunity. It creates economic um, prosperity. But we don't want that to, to increase the demand when we can't increase the supply. So we see this in housing. We don't have enough supply. We have too much demand. We see it in healthcare. We have so much demand and not enough supply. And we have these industries that we constrain artificially. And a lot of that constraint comes from labor supply. 
And so, yeah, I mean, if we've got training environments that can train up PSWs and nurses and we're standing in the way of that, when people desperately need that supply for the care of their parents and in long-term care homes or to get through emergency rooms faster because the, the nurse can triage them faster or whatever, if we have public policy in place that's constraining that, and we're also bringing in new immigrants to jack up the demand without fixing the supply problem, this is not going to go away. We can labor down demand if we want, but if we don't increase supply, we can't fix the problem. And so any public policy effort that's designed to increase supply, whether it's a labor or healthcare spaces or housing or whatever, I don't think we're going to move forward on some of these public opinion issues where people are getting frustrated and upset until we fix the supply issue. I agree completely. I just want to say I agree with Jenny on that. Like, it's like they we've hit this wall of our social infrastructure and our actual physical infrastructure can't sustain it. So we need to work more on building that up before we can accept more people. And so we need to scale these people up and build things too, right? The irony of needing housing to, to house the people that we need to train to build more houses is, is pretty obvious. But Kathleen, your comment on the councils, and, I, and I'm forgetting the name here, those were very valuable. And I would like to see the return of those. There's a few that survived on their own and found funding within a few departments. There's one around tourism that is very, very helpful about training and skills development. And it, it's very helpful to see that kind of kind of work. And there's a few others. Marlene, anything you want to mention on this? No, but besides like Jenny, I never thought of it from that perspective. I don't really have much to add besides, you know, I agree. I think that we have these demand issues, but we're filling it with supply, but it's causing demand in other areas. And um, I, I just like the way that Jenny has kind of laid out her, her argument there. And I, I agree fully. It is a good point she's made. We are an immigration nation and we don't want to get to a place where that's not something we accept. But some of these conditions that are lining up are not helpful for increasing immigration or, or containing it where it is now so that we can get the people that we need to develop our economy and, and grow the country. So, And maybe I'll just add this, and it's, it's less thoughtful, but more of a political angle to it, which is perception is perception. And there is a perception out there, whether it's truthful or not, whether it's based in fact or not, that some of the high immigration levels that's associated with colleges, with institutions, with education, there is a perception. I don't know if it's based in fact, to be honest. Like, you know, some of the arguments can always be that don't let the facts get in the way of a good argument. And I think that we might have a case of that. But unfortunately, the perception is there. And putting the facts out on the table of what the contributions within our economy are of having increased immigration students into our country, I think that's where educators can put some uh, kind of add to that piece. I agree. Like, I think Jenny and Kathleen have kind of covered the economic argument. I'm just kind of covering more of like the politics of it all. And there is a perception issue. There is a huge perception issue. I don't want to lose either. It was an earlier comment, Kathleen. I want to circle back to it. Your comment about corporations needing to train more too. I know you all listened to the podcast that came out yesterday with peaked interest. And we had a gentleman, Dr. Stephen Murgatroyd, who's been working with our college as a brilliant leader, full of energy. And he got talking about literacy skills in Canada and how corporations need to be investing in literacy skills. And it's funny how it kind of wraps back to some of our conversations on the earlier podcast too, about these skills that people need. And now we need to invest in more literacy. We need to get corporations training more of those kinds of skills. One of the things that we see is more corporations retraining to retain 
employees too. So there is some good news too. Makes sense. Why Why would you not? But the numbers are bad. Uh, the, the numbers are bad as, as he goes through in the podcast of where we're going on, on retraining and training our own employees. And sometimes it's easier to get rid of one than it is to retrain them. I also think that we overthink what it means to reskill, right? And reskill can be micro-skilling as well. You don't have to take a, a year-long course in order to gain new skills. I always use the example, and it's super simple. During COVID, we were all forced to learn and to be upskilled and to learn new skills because all of us learned Zoom, Teams, insert your online platform. We all became reskilled in technology at a very expedited rate, which has increased productivity, which has done all these things. Sometimes we overthink what a skill is and how to reskill or upskill. Sometimes these are micro actions, which will have immediate impact that you can do with your employees. I think often people are thinking they have to, you know, it, it's taking those bite-sized pieces rather than the whole elephant. And like, it's that piece. It's interesting. One of the things that we saw in Ontario was we were not allowed to train online prior to COVID. COVID hit, the government turned to us and said, get to it and see what you can do. COVID comes to a completion and they turned to us and said, keep going. Here's the rules you're under effect. Our sector gets together and starts talking about mental health, all the other things that come out of people not coming together. Because one of the great things about our institutions is people coming together. But it's funny how transformation. So now they're working on building communities amongst these students that aren't necessarily at the same location every day. So we can all transform. We can all, going back to a couple of things we've talked about today, we can be adept. We can be critical thinkers while being remote. There's a lot of things that people can do that just given the chance, they can do it. So we're going to wrap up with a couple of things here. First off, and I warned these three powerful leaders of this difficult question that we're going to put them on the spot on. Do any of you see any changes in leadership in the three parties or the four parties before we walk into the next? I know we're all thinking that Pierre Polyev's probably not going to make it to the election. <laughs> His numbers are down. He's struggling. Fundraising's very, very poor. Right, Jenny? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I worked on Mr. Polyev's leadership campaign and we had a pretty good sense of how well he'd do just based on how the campaign went. But when the results came in on that during that leadership campaign, it just like, and in the weeks following, he clearly has had, joking aside, the runway to do what he needs to do and kind of move forward with his caucus in a way that the last couple conservative leaders haven't, which I think has been a real difference maker for the conservatives' ability to like organize, like plan for the next election, drive a message that's coherent. Kathleen mentioned question period. Just being on the same message in question period and not having to like cater to the niche interests of different caucus members because they're like, well, this guy knows what it takes to win. So I'm going to ask whatever he has helped me to ask, right? That makes a really big difference when you're trying to gear up for an election, have a united message and win. So joking aside, yeah, he's, I think he's in a fortunate position given how successful he was in the leadership campaign. And that was a little humor. I wasn't trying to put you on the spot over, <laughs> over one, one leader. He is a, a fantastic communicator. We can all give him that for sure. I'm not sure there's a better communicator, but of course, you none of you are old enough to remember, but do you think any of you have feel there's a walk in the snow? I know none of you are around for Pierre Elliott Trudeau. You're all too young. Is there a walk in the snow moment for anybody before we get to the uh, 2025 election? I'm going to say this, like the prime minister can stay the prime minister for as long as he wants. He has been the prime minister for almost nine years. I think within the Liberal Party, he still has a huge amount of support. And there's a classic saying, you know, those in the know don't talk and those that don't know talk. We're just going to speculate. I don't know. The only person who has that answer is Justin Trudeau and maybe one or two people close to him. And that's ultimately his decision to make of when it's his right time. 
And so we can all sit here and speculate, you know, be those armchair quarterbacks. But um, I think he's earned the right within his party to decide when it's the time for him to depart. You're all answering along party lines here a little bit. But Kathleen, do you have anything you'd like to offer? I think we're going to go into the next election with the slate we have now. I, I really do. Obviously, Pierre is a phenomenal campaigner and communicator, and he wants that brass ring, right? So he's going to go for it. Jagmeet, I think, has gotten some things out of the confidence and supply agreement and thinks that he has a record now to run on. So he's going to give it one more solid college try of trying to increase the seat count above 24. In terms of Trudeau, I agree that he's in it and it is he is the Liberal Party right now, you know, so I don't know. Well, people always posit this like, well, he should step down. I'm like, yeah, but who would take his place? It's not unlike the Biden scenario. And I'm not trying to align the characters that way, you know, Trump and Polyev and, and Trudeau and Biden. I'm just trying to say people say Biden should step down. I'm like, but we haven't tested who will like, what is Gavin Newsom going to win? Is it Kamala Harris who's going to take it? I don't think so. I think against those characters, we may see a Republican victory. And the same thing here, we can make sure. I know that Justin Trudeau is not well liked. I think he knows that too now. <laughs> In some ways, the more interesting thing for me with the Liberal Party is like, he was a really popular leader. The party is very much his party. The party made a choice to move away from membership towards supporter class which was an interesting move that people like haven't spent a lot of time talking or thinking about since. But what happens when he leaves? Like, I think he does stick around to the next election. He could pull a rabbit out of a hat, who knows? But let's assume he doesn't. Let's assume he loses the next election. What the federal National Liberal Party looks like after that is such an interesting question. Oh, yeah. Because I don't know that there are factions. There's no real base. Like, there's a, it's a big, big question mark and it's a ways off, but it's something that I think political watchers should start to think about because there's really no clear answer. It's been a really good discussion over these two episodes and I'm going to go back to it. I think it was in the last one where it was Ginny that mentioned the need to read fiction. So in this podcast, we've decided to not focus in on just the education sector, but to get people with unique skills, unique views and Unique experiences in their career. So I want to just kind of recap a little bit about what I've heard over the last two episodes. But first off, we gotta we gotta go back to let's not be jerks. There's no way we're not running with that clip. That's important. I think that read fiction be this this absolute voracious leader. And then the tactical point that Kathleen went to about these councils that are important. Uh, that this getting people to the table is just about as important as anything talking about the needs, talking about the requirements, where we're going to be in five years. So what do we need to be there? So I thank the three of you. I want to give you all a chance because maybe you've got a thought you want to share with, with a student out there or an employer. Uh, one of the things that we don't talk about enough is our sector is so closely aligned with employers. And in many provinces where we're regulated, the employer has to advocate for the program to get it approved for regulation so we can teach them because we're, we could say regulated career colleges, but because we're privately owned, we need to prove a need before we can do it because the government's protecting the student that we're not graduating people into a, out of a program that there's no need for. Unlike the public institutions that might not face that same requirement. So I've really appreciated the conversation because it's gone in different directions that I didn't see happening. So I don't know, ladies, if, if there's a thought you want to share, and I'll start with you, Ginny, and I'll go Kathleen and, and Marlene, something you want to share about just anything in general that somebody, a learner, an employer, or a government might want to be thinking about. The feedback is a gift. And you won't get feedback unless you ask for it. It's really hard for people to be direct and give direct feedback, but it's the best thing you can get. And getting tough about getting tough feedback is important. And 
you will shoot past your peers if you get good feedback and hew towards it. And as a manager, you get the best out of your team if you give them constant feedback. And it sounds so easy and so obvious, but it's really, really hard to give and get direct feedback. And it's a like total difference maker. I'll just build on a comment that you didn't pick up on, Michael, but I think was one of the salient ones that Ginny mentioned in our previous podcast, which is there's not a wizard behind the curtain. You know, like I think that if I should phrase it differently, but it's like the whole idea that like, you know, there's no magic secret sauce out there. There's no people always come to me like, what's your campaign plan? I'm like, there's no secret campaign plan. You just have to work <laughs> it and develop it and be nimble and figure it out. So that that notion of faking it to you make it that there's no secret cabal of smart headed, pointy headed people that will that live on high and know everything. Just just work hard and and you'll do well. I'll pick up on my Kathleen work hard and you will do well. And number one, you got to put the work in, right? We didn't just show up today and be where we are. It is because we have spent 20 years, 20 plus years, whatever, in the trenches doing the work. And it was hard. The other thing that I think, and I wish I had learned this earlier, and maybe uh, when we, we had that conversation in the last episode, is you're on your own path. Don't compare yourselves to other paths. You are an individual. You are going to have, everyone is unique, especially in the world of social media, where we're comparing our success to others that we might see as like-minded or at the same age as us or doing different things. And wow, look how impressive they are. You're on your own path. Learn just to follow your own path and your own instincts and what works for you, because what works for somebody else may not be the same and they're on their own path. And I wish I had learned that earlier to just accept where I am and that I'm doing okay, right? Like you're doing just great. And that comparison can really eat at you. I think I've left it in the behind, but it's still, it rears its head every once in a while. I'm going to wrap up with, with a little thought because Kathleen, you, you hit me between the eyes there. I remember this great plan, right? We, I was the, working for Sharon Carstairs. She was the one wow, liberal from Manitoba. MLA. Yeah, one liberal MLA in the in in the legislature, and an NDP. I believe it was Mr. Dinning voted against, voted down the poly government. And next thing you know, he voted against his own government. We're into an election. The NDP are now having a leadership election during a campaign, and we're off and running. And we, because one gentleman ran into our office, typed up a letter and sent it to us. We were campaigning for four days with a piece of paper, door to door, while everybody else was scrambling. We had the media attention because nobody else was out there. And before it was done, at one point on election night, Sharon Carstairs turned to me. I was working for her. I was her only staff person at the time, turned to me and said, CBC has just called us to win a minority government. What do we do? And I turned to her and said, I have no beeping clue either. (laughs) There was no plan. There was no wizard wall. There was no smarter group of people. Somebody typed a letter on a piece of paper and said, go campaign. And it went from there. We elected people who spent $300 against cabinet ministers who spent $45,000. So sometimes it just happens. So I want to thank you all because you've triggered some thoughts in me. And I do know as as we move forward here uh, with the podcast and we get to a point that we make the t-shirts that we can all have and wear you know what it's going to say don't be a jerk don't be a jerk (laughs) don't be a jerk so thank you all i hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as i did and i hope people that listen take manage to take a little bit from it uh, take a little bit of a lesson from it and i look forward to the next episode that will come out next week thank you all for listening thank you ladies for joining us thank you thank you that was fun 
Thanks for listening to another episode of the Ed Up Canada podcast. We release new episodes regularly, so make sure you hit that subscribe button so you know when they are officially out. If you love this episode, please leave a four or five star review wherever you listen to your podcast so that others can also discover how a set of skills can lead to success. Thanks for learning with us.